Hello, my friends. Hello, my friends. Come on, have a seat. Come on, in my kitchen, my friends. Take it easy, my friend. Have a seat, my friend. Don't you know that I never want this minute to end, and then it ends. Have a seat, Bob. Yeah, good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Episode number 100 of Three Songs Pod. Welcome to episode 100, October 13th, 2019. Mm-hmm. Bob Nastanovich, Mike Hogan. We're doing something special tonight, and we're doing something different tonight. Normally... Yeah, first of all, first of all, thanks for waiting through, um, waiting W-D-I-N-G through the first 99. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we if are you doing have. something. What are we doing tonight, if, Mike? If, if you have... Thank you. If you haven't, if this is the first time you've heard us, we're doing something different. Normally what we do is we bring songs that the other likely hasn't heard or that we think most people haven't heard and we talk about them. Tonight we're bringing songs that we're probably expecting anybody listening to the show has already heard before, or at least is familiar with. And it's all focused on just one artist, and that's Mr. David Berman. Someone obviously very close to you, Bob. Yeah, obviously, um, one of my best friends, uh, and um, David Cloud Berman. He was originally born David Craig Berman, and uh, one of his dear friends in Nashville, also a songwriter named uh, David Cloud, died a few years ago, and he officially changed his name from David Craig Berman. The Craig came from his middle name. He was named... Um, after Craig Breedlove, who set the land speed record on the Bonneville Salt Flats in Utah. <laughs> and he, cha- he officially changed his name, middle name from Craig to Cloud. And uh, <clears throat> um, it's a little tidbit for wow. you. But uh, yeah, we're going to play all David songs. We're going to go through. Um, we, we called a bunch of songs that we dig from him. We'll tell some stories and stuff. We're going to start off right from the top. This is when Silver Jews were just um, not even really a band uh, with no intention of ever being recording artists. It was just myself and, and David and Stephen Malkmus uh, living um, in New Jersey, uh, specifically recording in a basement apartment on Willow Street in Hoboken. And it, um, I don't know if I told you before about the symbiotic relationship that we had with our neighbors you did yes <laughs> the puerto yeah. ricans right <laughs> yeah they were wild up there we yeah. had really wild full-on partying neighbors so it allowed us the opportunity with our broken gear and um there's you know his guitar was called the math guitar and it was just a terrible guitar it barely worked and then of course steven had real sort of equipment and uh and then I just had boxes and maybe one snare, and I had a, one of those old-fashioned stand-up ashtrays. Um, it, it was just basically I was just there to keep time and watch the um, 
the amazingly talented friends of mine do their thing and um and we would just record into an old tape recorder that was placed on the top of the tv and one interesting part of getting together and recording or making songs with these guys was situating ourselves in various parts of the room using this this two dollar tape recorder to try to get a mix and um, so we came up with stuff like this and um david saved all the cassette tapes and i don't know really exactly how things went from point a to point whatever where dan koreski from drag city um you know got his hands on them and thought they'd be good enough to put on records but surprisingly enough to us in i believe in 1990 he put out a seven inch which include which included this song which really gives a flavor for the best of what we were doing if you can believe that after listening to it (laughs) um eventually all this material was was collected onto a compilation in 2012 um and uh which was called early times but uh, this is from the original silver juice seven inch dime map of the reef and it's it's called uh, walnut falcon What is a walnut falcon? <laughs> <laughs> I've always wondered. A walnut falcon. Yeah. A walnut falcon is um, is just a falcon of some sort, a very large falcon, and um, it's a figment of David's imagination. Um, I think he 
loved both walnuts and falcons. So in his own mind, <clears throat> he created the walnut falcon. And um, and I think that was the only time that the walnut falcon was actually realized in the course of that one evening. But one thing, is one like thing that's important to me about that falcon? song is... <clears throat> what's that? Is it like the Millennium Falcon? Could be, could be as far as I know. I know this is a very large falcon. <laughs> okay. He had little black eyes and uh, an incredible wingspan. And uh, But uh, the, you can hear how the Silver Jews worked, at least in that era, very well in that song because Stephen's playing the guitar that makes sense and David's playing the math guitar. And you can hear that, that too. And all three of us make vocal um contributions mm -hmm. on that steven's like kind of doing background vocals and i i for some at some point made up a dream about the swarm and so i'm singing a dream about the swarm and david singing the the lyric so that's that's really like that's that's kind of the best we could do from that era we made lots and lots and lots of songs we um a true collaboration and, it, and yeah and i've told people too like who are in bands uh, that um you know, you think you've done something amazing until you listen to it the next day. And, you know, so we would finish, sometimes we'd go for a half hour, sometimes we'd go for three hours, and David would save everything. And, you know, I at least I'm just, I'll speak for myself saying, like, well, why would you save any of this material? <laughs> and he would scrap a lot of it, and we would record songs. Um, I, th I think I've told you before that about my friend Tanya Small, who got us Thurston and Kim's mm. answer machine. Yeah. And so we'd call them, we recorded a bunch of songs into their answering machine, which I'm sure are gone. Let's hope. <laughs> and uh, that was just, you know, just like, just like immature children I, making prank calls. They I would, prank I would, calls. I would imagine, you know, it's, it's like the, um, they might be giants dial a song. It's like the, the inverse of that. Instead of you call to hear their song of the day. <laughs> You're calling Kim and Thurston and leaving them your song of the day. And we were just doing it for the heightened excitement of like uh, being being Sonic Youth fans and thinking like, oh, they're going to come home from wherever they are and they're going to hear, oh, the, that weird, some weird band got our number and like, oh, they've left another 90 second message, which is one of their songs. They probably thought it was really kind of invasive hopefully they thought it was charming i'm i'm sure um, i'm sure you've I, since come across kim and thurston did you ever mention this to them did you ever talk about it yeah thurston and thurston laughed and he's like yeah i remember that you know I, I think we we deleted most of it um but we thought it was cute or whatever <laughs> and uh <clears throat> i mean it was a brief conversation i kind of left it at that yeah that's fair um and uh but um the funny part about it was, was I was the guy that had to call the number to the see, see if they were home or not. Okay. So, uh, so I would call, um, two, one, two, two, one, nine, two, six, five, eight. And, uh, and if they answered just, I would just hang up and I'd be like, I'd be like, okay, well that, that part of the deal is off tonight. Um, so we're just, we're just recording into the tape recorder, but, um, so we would get together you know, fairly, I'd say, you know, at least once a week and make songs. And um, then we'd listen to them the next day and we'd, we'd like we'd wake up thinking like what we what we did the night before had to have just been genius, at least in our own opinion. Sure. And uh, and very rarely was it. But and David was always in charge of he was the official curator of all this material. 
And at some point, he pipelined a bunch of it to Dan, and Dan, um, having the incredible open mind that he has about music, <laughs> Drag City, Drag City has proved that over the years. Um, dug a lot of it, and he put out that seven inch, which then eventually, of course, led to the Arizona record, um, and yeah, then I, our I, first ever. What's I, that? I, I bought that seven inch too, like. I don't know, I think I would think I was maybe in still in college or maybe I'd moved to, to Eugene, Oregon by that point. Um, but yeah, out of out of the blue, <laughs> you guys in, in Hoboken recording whatever into a tape player and I bought it. Still have it. Yeah, I mean I appreciate that. I mean I think you probably bought it because, you know, A at the time you were running Little Brother Records, so it kind of it was the same. It was the kind of thing that you would buy, just like, just right. like you know, sight unseen. I, I bought the, yeah. I bought the Centrado record, you yep. know, on on Little Brother. So, yep. you know, we're both buying the same kind of records, and yeah. um, and because it was Drag and, City, you're aware at that point of pavement related, yeah, Drag City. So yeah. Drag City had yeah Royal Trucks and pavement and stuff, yep. and I don't remember what number that was on Drag City, but it was pretty. I'm sure it was in their first ten releases. Yeah, um, it was early. Um, let me look. I can. I've got it. I've got it handy. Um, it was actually it was Drag City eighteen. Okay, so it was eighteen. Okay, so yeah, that's you know, it was definitely in the first two years of the label, <coughs> yeah. and um, and it actually made a little bit of a fuss in Hoboken. Um, they were selling it at Pure Platters, which was you know the hippest um, record shop, pretty much in the New York metropolitan area at mm-hmm. the time in Hoboken. Sure, and. Some of the staff liked it, and they put it in the window of the store. And then, um, I guess there was like a little bit of a hubbub about people who were somehow offended by the name. Oh, um, right. <laughs> yeah. Of the band, and, and we thought that was great publicity for us. Like there was even maybe even an article or something. You know, some some. I mean, you think about all the offensive band names out there, like Silver Jews. Like how right. could that possibly be offensive? You know, right. but, you know, you, you know that's how things work. So. Right. But well, so yeah, that, then we then we made Arizona record, and um, that was you know similar vibe, and um, and that one I think is is I, I don't even know if that that one's on Spotify. Uh, uh, isn't it part of early times? Yeah, it's definitely part of early times. So yeah, yeah, it's definitely on. It's definitely on Spotify. Yeah, and our dear friend Steve Keen did a fantastic piece, um, a desert piece for the cover of that. Yeah. He's a paint. He's a painter, and he did a he did a great painting for it. He was he's an old friend from from college from Charlottesville, and he lived in Brooklyn at the time. And we were pretty excited about that because that was our first twelve inch. But then then it was time for us to uh, make the big jump from the tape recorder to the recording studio. So um, we went to Easley um, in Memphis mm-hmm. and um, and made. Uh, <clears throat> starlight walker and we had not we were not around each other that much i mean i was around steven because we were doing pavement tours and stuff and so it was after saint enchanted and before crooked rain and david um was on the wander and he was living in oxford mississippi and he had rented this um he somehow befriended a chemistry professor at university of Mississippi and he didn't have any money and he was renting the guy's um chemistry lab which was outside Wait. of 
um, he, Oxford. He was out living in the middle in a of nowhere. Chemistry lab. Yeah, it was like a, it was like it was, it was like it, it had like a it was like a shotgun type thing, but it was probably about three hundred square feet, and there was a whole bunch of like you know beakers and like chemistry equipment around and stuff, which obviously we didn't mess with. It would be like if you went right. to a house and there's a bunch of bottles, you're not going to touch any yeah, of them, you know. Sure. And David obviously was very respectful of the guy, especially considering that he, he the rent was one hundred and fifty a month. Um, wow. So, and. It wasn't nice, but it was, you could live in it. And, uh, so we met, we all met down there. Steven and I drove down there from, I believe from Louisville and we had studio time booked at easily, I think three days. Um, we got together, um, a day or two before, no, no longer then. And Steven was kind of deli- or David was pretty deliberate about, um, letting us figure out what the songs were, which was kind of a critical part of the whole process. Cause Steve West was going to come down to, you know, Memphis and, and be involved um, in the project. And David had made it clear that he needed a real drummer because the songs that he was making, even though there was no music to them, he felt like they needed somebody who could play a drum kit, which I can't. And, but it, Anyway, so we got together, and in about four or six hours, we fleshed out all the songs, which meant that we took a bunch of his poems and made songs around them. Okay. So the words existed first, huh? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how, I mean, I don't know if other bands work that way. I'm sure there have been bands that do that, but the lyrics always came first. Hmm. And I think that's part of... um, David's process all the way through to the end. Sure. And I think we played New Orleans, New Orleans from the session on another show, and I played Moog on that. There was mainly just their guitars and a little bit of keyboard. And um, I mean, it's a, I, I really love the record. I think it's a good record, Starlight yeah. Walker. Yeah. And this is um, you know, this is my favorite off of it. Um, Trains Across the Sea off of Starlight Walker was which was released in '94. Right. On Drag City. Yeah. On Drag City for sure. Everything's on Drag City. surprise and in there I met a lady 
shaded sides And she said It's been evening all day long It's been evening all day long And how can something so old Be so Drag me down to sleep to dream of trains across the sea Trains across the sea Half hours on earth What are they worth? I don't know In 27 years I've drunk 50,000 beers And they just wash against me Like the sea into a pier So you mentioned that it was recorded at Easley's studio, and sonically, that's just a huge leap forward. I mean, everything about it is a huge leap forward from Dime Map of the Reef. I mean... Yeah, it was in a recording studio. Well, and, and I'm just, as someone who is not familiar with the story, not familiar with anything about the band, really other than it being, in my mind, a pavement side project on Drag City, I go from that 7-inch to the Arizona record and then that drops and it was striking surprising completely unexpected right because I wasn't thinking they're gonna bring out this sonically rich you know musically and lyrically like evocative and beautiful record it's 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 a complete departure in in, in, in the best possible way yeah, I think that I think the band had decided that, um, or David, because David, you know, he was this was his band, and right. um, he was always super aware and bothered by the fact that it was a pavement side project, and that was how it was referred to in the indie music press at the time. Mm-hmm. That's and what it was I thought. Very much, <clears throat> very much his project, and he just, you know, he decided that he wanted his, his thing to be more like of a, of a band or not like ridiculously lo-fi or, or excuse my adjective, um, lo-fi. Yeah. So, um, you know, he was wanting to make real songs. So that's why it was time to go into the studio and there's no better place on the face of the earth to do that than easily. I was particularly self-conscious about going into music studios. I always found them intimidating. Um, the only one I'd really been ever been in before was Gary Young's, which was <clears throat> very casual with Gary controlling everything, always in his house. And um, so I'd never been in a proper recording studio. And I know David hadn't, and I'm not really sure 
what extent Malcolmus had either. But um, <clears throat> Doug Easley and, and Davis McCain as assistant, I don't know if they'd seen such rudimentary acts before, but they'd done plenty of indie stuff. Right. And they were so... Um, they were so welcoming um, that our self-consciousness, at least mine, I think David's completely went away and we felt like they took us seriously. And in fact, on that song trains across the sea, one of the, one of the things that makes a song fantastic is Doug playing. He's a very accomplished um, uh, pedal steel guy. Mm -hmm. And he added, he added some beautiful, um, pedal steel to that in a similar fashion that he did when Pavement um, recorded there. Um, specifically, he added a beautiful part to Pavement's song, Father to a Sister of Thought. Now, so, did, did, did you get hooked up with him through the Grifters? No, I think, and we knew the Grifters, and we knew, we knew Sherman Wilmot really well, the guy that runs Shangri-La Records in Memphis. Mm-hmm. And it would probably be through Sherman, just like hearsay and like knowing about the place and like um, David being down in Mississippi at the time. And uh, I don't really remember how we were specifically tipped off that Easy was a good place for us to go, but certainly spent a lot of time there. I mean, Wowie's Alley was made there and then um, a bunch of other pavement stuff and Silver Jews attempted to make more stuff there. And it was just the old studio, which, which eventually burnt down. Um, in fact, it burnt down in the middle of <clears throat> David had recorded a bunch of stuff there for one of his later records. And it was, I'd have to look up the specific history of easily, but it was a very professional recording studio with a lot of space. And it was just, it was just a great place to record. It was mainly because of the gentlemen involved. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, they were, they would take, I'm sure they dealt with nervous punk rock bands from Memphis too, you know, so, um, and the grifters, I mean, the grifters obviously sure. were ram ramshackle band. Yeah, absolutely. Especially early so, on. You know, it's, it's the perfect place for, you know, indie mayhem to, um, unveil itself. So <laughs> yeah, we yeah. got, we got lucky there. And you wanted to play another one from the record from Starlight Walker advice to the graduate. Oh yeah, I just think it's a it's a great example of um, just you know great example of of you know David writing songs and, and writing great lyrics. All right, let's check it out. If you got a message, leave your name and number, and we'll get back.
So a couple things about that, Mike. Yeah. First of all, that was Steve West's um, debut. Okay. So it was, which meant a lot because that was the first time the band had a real drummer, and I think you mm-hmm. can tell. Yeah. How sure. how much that adds. For sure. Um, and it's a great um, performance by him. Um, I believe. Keep in mind that just about every song in Starlight Walker is less than three takes. Right. <laughs> um, with limited, because it's just like that whole thing where um, we're just not going to do much better than that. Mm-hmm. And I remember standing off to the side thinking like, there's no way that this song, which I've only heard two or three times, is going to be you know much better than this. Yeah. And uh, so, um, and then also the spontaneity of uh, Steve Malkmus. Mm-hmm. Uh, he made up all of his lyrics like on the spot. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. He just yeah, comes it, in with that it, beautiful, beautiful vocal. Yeah, and that's just you know kind of the way he works. I think he enjoyed at that time, and perhaps in general, not being the focal point mm-hmm. of the band, and being like very, you know, being a lead guitar player, background vocalist guy. Well, in in that song in particular, I think shows the beauty of the collaboration between David and Stephen, and you've got David's amazing lyrics, like. Like in, in completely profound lyrics, like on the last day of your life, don't forget to die, which is both right. funny, funny and really heavy at the same time. The things, the things that you do will always make your mama cry. Yeah, and and what's what's the line? The the third third drink. The third the third drink will lead you lead astray, astray, wandering wandering down the back streets of the world. Right, right. You so you've got lines like that, and then you've got that beautiful. I don't know if it's a bridge or chorus that that Stephen comes in with that it it just feels so natural. Uh, Those guys are good, man. Yeah, they're good. They're good. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's all I'm telling you. Like, you know, even like you know the early days we were talking about earlier. um, They just yeah, I don't even know. They weren't even really friends too much in at Virginia. Um. In fact, I had pretty much separate friendships with both of them. They were both really close friends of mine in the 80s at University of Virginia. And they didn't spend a whole lot of time together until we all lived in New York. Hmm. And um, I'd convinced them both. Stephen was in Stockton. He was trying to figure out what to do. And David was in Austin. He was having a really great time. And I was like, you guys have got to be in New York. It's so amazing Hmm. to be here. And like... In separate phone calls, I somehow convinced them both to move to New York, and that's when their friendship blossomed. They worked together at the Whitney Museum as security guards, right? And they—that's when they went from being guys who knew each other at UVA. They were both college radio DJs. There was no rivalry. They just didn't spend a whole lot of time together. Mm-hmm. Um, David was more social. And Stephen was just like, um, you know, he was an English history double major. He would finish his schoolwork and then he would come hang out and he would take the occasional road trips. They'd met each other before I became friends with either of them. They went to a Cure concert together with somebody and I was at the Cure concert by myself. And I remember seeing both of them there and thinking like, 
oh weird those guys i know i know both of them from school this one were when, when i was first year and david was first year and steven was second year i was like oh cool they're friends but then i realized that whoever their mutual friend was that was going to see the cure in washington like they just like were two strangers that piled into a car with maybe four <laughs> people in it and like um Maybe that's the but first they time never, they met. They were, they were never buddies until New York. Yeah. Huh. And, Crazy. Uh, you know, then, you know, the rest of their lives, they had an interesting, fragmented friendship. And, um, you know, Stephen loved David and David loved Stephen. And, and just like my relationship with both of them, like, you know, there are ups and downs. So. Right. So right after that record was when David kind of abruptly fired you guys, right? Yeah, I think he got tired of he got tired. Um, I'm not. I mean, I don't really know the thought process David used, but he got. I think he just. The bottom line was, was he he got tired of there being any mention of pavement in his band Silver Jews. Sure. Okay, which was something that was unavoidable because right. if you've got three members of pavement, including the main guy. Right. In your band, then you're always going to get that. Right. Okay. And it was unfair to David because it was clearly his project. Right. Clearly, like, 90% David. And, and, and yeah. you know, we, we heard it on that last song. I mean, as beautiful as the lyrics are that, that David brings, you know, in some ways I could see people saying, oh, you know, Steven stole the show with that vocal. I don't know about stole the show, but he added a very valuable contribution. Right. No, but it's it's and like, like he, and he had the more he was, it, you know, it, semi-famous in indie yeah, rock. Right. Right. Exactly. And, he he he's the head headliner playing the cameo role in the movie, in the in, you know that that is has an unknown semi unknown lead star. You know, the cameo appearance by the big star is going to get or the bigger star is going to get the attention. Right, and then there's me, and I'm in payment, and then there's Steve West, the guy who joined the band to add what Steve West brings to the table, and he's, you know, he's also now in payment. So we go out, mm-hmm. on, we go out on tour for Crooked Rain, which was really an album that I had nothing to do with the recording process, and it was really mostly Steve West joining Pavement, and the whole album was mainly fleshed out of Steven's songs by Steve West and Steve Malkmus in Brooklyn. Hmm. And then the other guys, uh, Malkmus, I'm sorry, Eyebold and Scott Camberg made their, their contributions to it. And so then we were on tour, like, um, in 1994, Payment did over 200 shows. We were on tour all the time, and we were... Um, you know, becoming, we were also being taken, taken more seriously as a band from after Slan and Shannon, we were more part of the music business. So however the hell it works. Right. And, uh, so, you know, the whole thing of like, in his mind, David's mind, pavement's getting really famous. Now I'm, I'm still getting referred to as a pavement side project. And without telling us, he fired us all. And then we hear, we hear that he's gone, I believe to Connecticut and um, made a record with Ryan Murphy from Drag City and a few other people. I can't remember who the personnel is. It's an album that I... I my feelings were hurt, mm-hmm. okay? Because mm-hmm. I considered myself as much a member of Silver Jesus' Pavement. Sure. Um, 
And, you know, because I was not friend. I was not an original member of, pa- of Pavement, you know. Yeah. But I was an original member of Silver Juice. So, like, in a lot of ways, personally, Silver Juice were more near and dear to my heart. Um, so, you know, it hurt my feelings <clears throat> to find out in Europe that I was no longer in a band that I was an original member of. And I wasn't angry about it. It was just like, I was just disappointed, I guess, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, and then finding out that, you know, not only had my Steven, I don't know how Steve, you'd have to ask Steven how he felt. Um, I mean, I probably did at the time. I think we're, we had kind of had this whole like, Oh man, I'd, Oh man, bummer type attitude. Um, but I mean, I never really listened to, to the next Silver Juice album very often. Well, but then I came, I came to realize that it was loaded with great songs. But let's let's play a song. We can talk about it a little bit. Um, this is one called Dallas from the Natural Bridge, nineteen ninety six. Yeah, the Natural Bridge. It's got that cover that's like black with a green thing. I think it's a yeah. David piece of art. Yeah, yeah. Dallas. Here you go. Let's play it. See you 
whipped her with his belt buckle He cleaned her cuts and then we prayed Oh Dallas, shine with an evil light Don't you know that God stays up all night So I got a couple things to say about that song. Um, first, I'm going to go back and say, you know who did the cover, actually, of that record? Yeah, Mike Flood did it. Mike Flood. He was, he was a dear friend of uh, yeah. Sebado's, played yeah. a bunch of Sebado songs. Yeah, we mentioned we mentioned him on the Sebado shish. Uh, Huge part of Sebado. In fact, that yeah. was very much a New England album. Yeah, yeah. Um, David was going to grad school at UMass. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> right, right. And um, um, that's when he... One interesting thing about the aborted session, which actually happened in 94, not 95, that would have been like the <clears throat> pre-Natural Bridge session, which was very brief. We went back to Easley to record, and Peyton Pickerton, who was a friend of ours um, from Massachusetts, and Matt Hunter, were, they were in a band, they played on that, <clears throat> and they were, um, Peyton had come down to be the bass player. Um, for the aborted session. And he'd taken a Greyhound bus from Western Mass to Nashville and then ridden with David down in a car to be a part of the Silver Jews with myself and Steve West and Malcolm's. And <clears throat> David started recording at Easley, and two or three hours into it, he just he decided he couldn't do it. And it had something to do with um, that I never really figured out specifically um, with him not being able to play with Malkus anymore. And hmm. uh, and so <clears throat> that would have back to that story of how that era of Silver Jews ended. But I was I remember seeing the personnel and I was very pleased that he'd gotten Peyton, who went all the way down there to record, spent less than four hours in a recording studio had to drive back with a very upset David from Memphis back to Nashville, then get back in a bus and go all the way back to Western mass. Okay. Mm. And then Peyton, of course, um, ended up playing on that and then ended up being in the first ever, um, lineup for the silver Jews live, which I tour managed in the early tooth, but many years later, 2005 or six or something and uh and so did matt hunter who was also new radiant storm king ryan from mm -hmm. drag city and flood did the record cover 
And but the funny thing about that, the subject matter. So it's a very New England album, and that's a song about Dallas. Yeah, and that's a it's it's a very um, it feels more of a country tinge to it than than some of the earlier stuff. Yeah, he, I mean, like you know, who knows why? And um, you know, David, I think his appreciation of country music is far larger than mine, mm-hmm. and it also kind of fits, you know, the way he sings and. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure sort of really what he was into mm-hmm. and kind of a, you know, departure from, from indie rock in general in a sense. Mm-hmm. But, um, but Dallas, you know, he'd spent, um, he grew up in Worcester, Ohio. And when he was 16, he, he lived with his mother, um, for many years up until the age of 16. Then, his junior and senior year of high school, he moved to Dallas to live with his dad, Rick. Mm. And uh, he lived there for a couple of years. And he's described it in many ways to me, but um, essentially at the time, uh, Rick was involved with doing a lot of work with major restaurant chains. And he said that he would eat at steak and ale just about every night. Hmm. The old... The old chain steak and ale mm-hmm. and Bennigan's. Either every night he'd either eat at Bennigan's or steak and ale. And <clears throat> he described like pool parties where like he was sixteen and seventeen. He was kind of goth at the time. He was really into like the cure and joy division. And he looked goth. When he went to mm-hmm. when he came to UVA, he's this big guy who's like kind of gothy. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> and he'd come from Dallas, even though he grew up in Worcester. And um but he'd go to these pool parties, he would say with like, there was like, you know, Playboy playmates in the pool and stuff. And like, it made no sense to us. I mean, I'm, I'm from Richmond, you know, like, but he was living like he so he went from being like, you know, lower middle class in Worcester. And then suddenly living sort of in a, with a rich guy in Dallas, his dad. And it was um, a strange transition for him. You know, obviously a fragile um, guy. And, uh, so yeah, his memories of Dallas, I remember seeing, um, one of the greatest movies I've ever seen in my life with David, which is, it's interesting. Cause I don't really re- ever remember him as a movie goer, but we went and saw that fantastic documentary, the thin blue line. Mm. You've seen that, right? Oh yeah. Errol Morris, Errol Morris, Great one of, movie. I think his best work, but a fantastic yeah. documentarian. Yeah. For sure. And uh, we saw, we saw it at a movie theater in Charlottesville in 89 and a you know, it blew, blew both of our minds. Um, and David said, I know you haven't spent any time in Dallas, but that, that was Dallas. That's what mm-hmm. Dallas is like. Mm-hmm. So that's like, and that's kind of always stuck with me. Like, um, you know, that's what Dallas is like. That's what Dallas is and, like. Huh. and that song, that song. So he knows Dallas. He knew Dallas, you know, so, way so better, way better than I ever did. That song <laughs> has a couple lines that I would say are, in my opinion, the funniest Silver Jews lyrics. Saying a lot. That is saying a lot. Uh, do you want to guess? No. Okay. One of them you is. Tell me. You one, tell me. One it's of your, them it's your is. Call. It's your call, bud. Your it, call. Is it? Is it true your analyst was a place kicker for the Falcons? Yeah, that, yeah that's <laughs> typical. Typical David. <laughs> that's that's a great one, but even better, probably my favorite is, and, and it goes back to your reference to steak and ale. <clears throat> hey boys, suppers on me. Our record just went pla- went aluminum. Sorry, not platinum. Aluminum. Yeah, 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 aluminum. yeah, yeah. yeah. 
tremendous, tremendous smart, just incredible sense of humor on the guy. For sure. Like, you, you, it, it comes yeah. across, you know, but it, it also, like the heaviness, I think, is it's it's this kind of dry humor that's also taking a notch out of himself most of the time. At least that's that, was the way his, I, that was his sense of humor in a nutshell, my that, man. That's that's <laughs> the way I read it. Well, let's yeah. let's let's move on. We got a lot of other songs to play, and we've oh, been yeah. rambling. It's going well. It's going well. Yep. Yeah. Um, I don't know what's next in the lineup. I think you've got the lineup in front of you. Well, you know, the next album was American Water, which oh yeah, like we were saying on before the show started that um, if you met someone tomorrow that said, oh yeah, I bought the Purple Mountains record and like. I never really listened to Silver Jews, like, you know, where would be a place to start? And we both agreed that, um, that well, I told him to buy American Water. Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough. I, I love Starlight Walker, too. Uh, the other no, albums. I mean, all the albums are great. Yeah, they there's have great, their... There's, there's right. great songs on right. every album. Exactly. There's, but I yeah. think beginning to end, American Water is my favorite. Um, it's Malcolmus coming back. Yeah, so... Uh, well, well, let's play a song and then we'll talk. We'll, we'll maybe play one or two and then we'll talk about it. Um, you wanted to play Blue Arrangements. Yeah, Blue's Arrangements. Yeah, this is a real favorite of Whitney's, who's my wife, Whitney's, who's the biggest Silver Jews fan that I personally know. <laughs> yeah, that's saying uh, a lot. Like, I mean, no, yeah, I mean, she's, she is, you know, even when, like, during periods of time in which, you know, David and I weren't getting along. Always emanating from her art studio is one of her main three bands in life is Silver Silver Jews and and um, this is you know if she had to make a top twenty blues arrangements would be in the top five so this for the wit. I see you gracefully swimming with the country club women in the Greenwood Southside Society pool. Love your amethyst eyes and your Protestant thighs. You're a shimmering socialite Jew. From the carbon dioxide, riding academy to the children's crusade, marching through the downtown. I think I'd die, see if you just said hi to me When something breaks, it makes a beautiful sound Sometimes I feel like I'm watching the world And the world isn't watching me back But when I see you, I'm in it too The waves come in and the waves go back and the kids in the car all covered in dirt Caught trespassing under the moon My father came in from wherever he'd been He kicked my shit all over the room All over the room All over the room Static and on your blue, blue jeans 
Silver Jews go blues. Yeah, it was. I think that was like um, to me. That was when the Silver Jews sounded a lot like Royal Trucks. <clears throat> yeah, you know, and it's who's playing guitar on that song? Malkmus. Yeah. Um. Definitely he's, one of them. He's doing definitely the, one of the he did one the, of the guitar. Did he players. do the solo? Um. It could be Dave. I don't. I don't think it was David. Yeah. I mean. Um. It could have been Fellows. I know he was on that. Mike Fellows. Yeah. Some of those. I do know this. The drummer was Tim Barnes. Okay. Um. Tim Barnes, interesting guy. Um. Great guy. And um. I I used to go out for four years with a woman called Erica Bricking, and from well, I met Louisville, and um. We broke up in the '90s, and then her next boyfriend was Tim Barnes, who she ended up marrying, who she's still married to, that she has two lovely boys with that I think are teenagers. <laughs> and so she's only ever gone out with Silver Jews drummers. <laughs> <laughs> Look out, Steve West. <laughs> it's pretty, you know, pretty interesting little piece of trivia. But yeah, that was Mike Fellows, who's a fantastic guitar player. And then um, a guy I don't know real well, um, named Chris Straffolino, um, and uh, Malk, of course, returns mm, on that, right? And and that's a, that's very much the. This is when I'd kind of lost touch with 
David. He was in New York. Um, it was during an era in which Mark Eibold nicknamed him American Psycho. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he was hanging out a lot with a, a friend of ours uh, named Rob Bingham, and uh, who's um, uh, uh, Smith and Jones Forever was about to. Uh, Rob's dead, um, but um, we could never really convince Rob that the song wasn't called Sit and Jones Forever. Um, <laughs> because he thought that it was about um, sitting and jonesing for drugs. And uh, <laughs> that's all beside the point. It's a very much a Brooklyn album. Those guys are going wild in Brooklyn. I was in Louisville. I was so ensconced in horse racing at the time. That to me it was like okay, payments doing what, and then I'm going to be off for what, and I'm living across the street from Churchill Downs, and I'm having this sort of glorious life where I just do pavement and then go to the racetrack. So, whatever those boys were doing in New York, I wasn't a part of, you know. So, you know, again, I I was just happy they were making great music like American Water. So, mm. well, you mentioned Smith and Jones Forever. Let's play that one too. Oh yeah, definitely. All right, here you go. Something's added to the air 
When they turn on the chair Something's added to the air Forever To the air Forever Smith and Jones Forever Together Yeah, that's more of an indie rock song. Good song. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's kind of a. I think that song's for Rob, really. Rob Bingham, rest in peace, my man. Yeah. <clears throat> Dear friend of David and Stevens. Only guy I ever hope I ever know that I go to his wedding and funeral in the same year. And, you know, but I'm not going to get too into Rob, but yeah, that mm. was uh, very much a New York album. And, um, I think that um, a recurring theme in David's songwriting from the mid-90s forward was, you know, an obsession with death. You know? Yeah. And uh, so, you know, a lot of people, we'll get to Purple Mountains later, but, you know, a lot of people have said that, you know, including dear friends of his and have said that, you know, the Purple Mountain stuff just sounds like a suicide note. But, uh, you know, to me, there's uh, there's always, even you know, in the early years, you know, like, there is like a, you know, a super awareness of life, of, die, of life ending. I mean, we, you know, we, advice to the graduate on, you know, would be the, you know, Walnut Falcon and songs like, I mean, like, there's a lot of, uh, a certain amount of silliness early on, but then, you know, as, you know, as life proceeded, you know, went on through his, you know, 20s and 30s and 40s and stuff, um, he was always sort of preoccupied with death. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's why, like, you know, when I heard Purple Mountains, I didn't think that anything about it being like, the suicide note to me, it just kind of sounded like the kind of subject matter that David tackled. You know? Sure, yeah, yeah, that's fair. You know, very aware of like um, when it's going to end, right? So that's why, like, you know, we'll get into it later on in the show, but <clears throat> yeah. Um, so we were going to go to Bright Flight, the ironically named Bright Flight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I wanted to play something. It's actually Bright Flight was released in two thousand one. I wanted to play something that David did in um, 2008 live on WFMU. Yeah, real quick, real quick, one thing I wanted to say that, that you know, of course, David, um, Natural Bridge was, so David was on Drag City, then he also, his records were being released in Europe on Domino. Yeah. And so there was this, you know, there was a demand for him to play live because you're going to play a live track, right? I am, yeah. I'm going to play, it's live in the studio at WFMU. So there's a lot of people like, you know, wondering like if the guys could, but he'd played live tours at that point, like by the time you play this, you know, version of Horse Like Swastikas, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, but I mean, it's like obviously like both Drag City and Domino wanted, from the mid-90s on wanted him to play live and he just, uh, <clears throat> he just didn't think he could do it. And I can understand why knowing him, he did not think that he could recording music is a lot different than playing live the the spontaneity of playing live 
<clears throat> the um, in his mind, like the emotional savagery of playing live, um, the pressure. Here's a guy that could stand there and read poetry in front of hundreds of people. Um, and that's one thing which I would I would think would be way more difficult than playing live music. But keep in mind, like for my live music experience, like I've always been a background guy. So I think being the focal point in playing music, <clears throat> he was never really comfortable enough until the 2005 with playing live hmm. because it's it's hard for like a, somebody who's a recording artist but you know not necessarily a live musician right. and we played live before like we played in 93 as part of the drag city invitational um we were a disaster like hmm. a you know, I mean, not. I don't think in a horrible. I don't think we completely humiliated ourselves. Keep in mind, it was the drag scene invitational, so it was a bit of a rambling wreck, anyways. But, um, so anyway, so, <clears throat> so it's interesting. So you're going to play a song from 2001, which is during the era in which he would not play live. 2008. After, 2008. No, but the 2001s when the song was made. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So he wasn't playing live yet at all. Not even a concept. So this yeah. is after. This is this is after he'd become a live musician. Yeah. So in in I like this version. It's um it's got a little piano intro. It's different from the album version. It's 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 kind of pretty. Sit back and listen. Horse it's a great leg, song. Yep. Horse leg horse leg swastikas. Live on WFMU. Up into the highest number 
Okay, important point to make about horse like swastikas in that particular version that you played. Um, that was, of course, off of uh, David's first album made in Tennessee. That's American Water. He was in New York. Mm. He left New York. He came to Louisville. Okay, he was living in my house in Louisville, 907 Central Avenue, and he met his wife, Cassie, and they fell in love immediately. And they were both living in my house. It's a very small house. And David did not really like Louisville. Um, he just didn't get along with it. Um, he didn't. He just <laughs> was confrontational. He was coming out of New York. It was not Louisville was never a good fit for David, even though he made some friends for life there. Just like being in that town did not jive with him. So he moved. He and Cassie moved down to Nashville, and that was. You know a very important transition in his life um he loved nashville mm -hmm. and um and it's interesting that version of horse like swastikas that you played because it was recorded in 2008 mm -hmm. and that definitely the piano part you talked about that's definitely tony crow mm -hmm. on uh on piano this is keyboardist for his first live show it's peyton pinkerton from his live bands william tyler from his live band mm -hmm. and it's his dear close friend uh, brian kotzer on the drums and i imagine cassie's playing bass on it as well so that was his live band and in 2001 he made his first ever album in tennessee and that and horse like swastikas was on that and it was recorded by a friend of his named mark nevers and um again you know i knew he was recording and i was excited about that and but it was this is very much like I'm out of Louisville, I'm in Tennessee, and he's real happy about it. Hmm. And um, this is a this is a, a song very much about um, this is when he's getting he's he's writing this autobiographical slow education. When God was young, he made the wind and the sun. And since then It's been a slow education And you got that one idea again One about dying Oh
York banging in the wind Remember you wanted to be like George Washington back then Everybody going down on themselves No pardon me's or fare thee wells in the end And you got that one idea again The one about dying Oh, 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 I'm lightning Oh, 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 I'm rain Oh, 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 it's Slow education. Yeah, that's um, the slow education is slow education. Hmm. It's a beautiful song, and yeah, I love I love, I love her backing yeah. vocals on that one too. Yeah, it's great. It's Cassie. Yeah, right. <clears throat> yeah, that's Cassie. That's Cassie. Cassie joined you know, the band. Cassie's yeah. like, you know, very much like a huge part of Silver Jews at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, obviously she's his right and left hand woman, and um, you know. And a uh, great musician and and a great singer. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it was an important addition to Silver Jews because it, you know, wasn't all dudes. Yeah, and, <laughs> you know, I mean, I think even from the beginning, I always felt like Silver Jews was, it was David's thing, but it was also about the collaboration of the other members, you know, first with Steve and you know, later, <clears throat> even with, with some of the others, um, when Steven wasn't in the band, you know, some of the, we, you, you talked about some of the other members, um, Peyton Pinkerton and, um, you know, I think Cassie joining helped that collaboration that David needed to be really, you know, I mean, he, he was good and successful on his own, but I think bringing that interplay with another artist, like helped elevate the songs that came with Nashville. Um, that just came with Nashville. That Nashville opened up a lot of things for him because of all the incredible music talent there. And then all the people he knew, you know, before he moved there. And for example, we're going to play a song now off of what is definitely his most collaborative album, Tanglewood numbers. It's the album that, at some point, he believed where he could start doing live shows. It's he started making it two thousand four, mm. and um, and and he was in the process of like eventually putting. I don't know what I don't know what made him decide he could play live because that was always a big part of Silver Jews. When are they going to play live? When are they going to play live? And um, he put together a live band, but this album in particular has obviously David. It's got Kotzer. It's got Mike Fellows been in the band before. Um, Steven played on it. Um, I was on one song. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, two. I was on Punks in the Beer Light, and um, I played the drums on How Can I Love If You Won't Lie Down. 
obviously Cassie, Tony Crow joins the band. Uh, Paws, who's I believe the bass player for for Pixies now. Um, I've never met um, Azita Yusefi, one of his dear friends from Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bobby Bear Jr. Will Oldham plays on this. Dear friend of his, right. Dwayne Dennis, Dwayne Dennison, who lives in Nashville, of course, from you know uh, Jesus Lizard. Jesus Lizard, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Pete Cummings, great guy. Willie Tyler's on this, and John St. West. John Stephen West. We're all on it in various parts, and it was it was recorded um, again by Nevers in Tennessee, and it's it's a great album. And like this is like when David became a live artist and played all over the world, and he played old songs and new songs. And the month I was a part of it, I was a part of I was tour manager for about twenty three gigs over maybe less. I can't even I'm not looking at the tour schedule, but a whole like a uh, four to five weeks of shows in the u.s and i, I got fired from that too for various <laughs> reasons <laughs> me and steve west got fired it's a similar theme steve west and i we could be like that we definitely won the award for being the most fired people um i i got fired by david 100 times as his friend um there is you know a lot of periods of dormancy over our 30 plus years of knowing each other but i officially got um, fired as a drummer, fired as a tour manager, fired as a friend, and then like, you know, <laughs> I never really tried to work my way back in. He was just—it was more like him saying, "Okay, it's over now." You know, <laughs> you know, we called it the penalty box. <laughs> like, you know, I'm putting you in the penalty box. You know, and I don't know if friendships goes go that way, but this one did. Yeah. But um, I'm gonna play a, a song, another um, song that's very much about himself, which is. Something that um, sort of changed for him as a songwriter, I think he was getting more into um, writing about himself. Um, person, you know, there were more personal songs, and um, you know how uh, I'm getting back into getting back into you off of Tanglewood Numbers, the fifth studio album by Silver Jews, 2005. Baby, won't you take this magnet? Maybe put my picture back on the fridge I must have been crazy To let you get away like you did And like a brown bird nesting in a Texaco sign I got a point of view And the kicker is that I'm getting mad time we became ducks I never seemed to see you much then the world turned time got away we fell out of touch I've been working at the airport bar it's like Christmas in a submarine wings and brandy on a winter's night I guess you wouldn't call it a scene
wife's living in the suburbs with her guru and her mom. Now she finds her consolation in the stardust of a bar. You can call it a spin-off, say it's a knockoff, title it part two. a good song good song you, you know you the that was definitely a guy that was it, it was you can hear that live yeah you know what i mean right and uh but but as a poet you know did you ever did you ever read any david's poetry books there's only i think there's only two there's portable february and then there's of course a uh, name escapes you right now the incredible book he wrote right uh, the, um, i know yeah um, i haven't read it but I, no. it'll come to me in a second but um you can't change the feeling. You can only change the feeling about the feeling. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. He wrote that when he was 19 years old, you know, mm. and he was always like, you know, just, we talked about earlier in the show about, it was all about as a musician, we're talking about his music, but it was all about, um, songs being built around poetry. And I think that he realized at some point, maybe because his friends were in bands and he loved music and he loved bands that like in order to like give his poetry an audience, then maybe playing music, which is something that he was, came very not a natural thing for him. It's something that he had to do. Right. Okay. And um, so, I mean, he, as I knew him as a poet, you know, and like, then, then like, when he came to New York, he's like, okay, we, I, I guess, you know, I, I don't even know how it worked. Okay. But that's what I, that's what I always thought, you mm. know, like, cause you know, how much audience, even if you're like, and he's celebrated as a poet, mm-hmm. you know, but you know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. But it's, God, poetry has got to be a hard, <laughs> it's got to be a hard Not for him. Gig. Not for him. Well, I just mean no, to, to oh, make mean a living. It's like a stand up comedy is way yeah. easier. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's um it's just got to be hard. You know, it's hard to make money as a musician and it's hard to make money as a comic. It's got to be really hard to make money strictly as a poet. Yeah, actual air. Actual air. Actual air. Yeah, I was going to say Do you have a copy of that? Do you have a copy of actual air? I do not. Oh, yeah. Well, I think I've given mine. I think I've just given I think I've given all mine away. <laughs> I think we're just down to one here. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but if I find one, I'm going to send it to you for Christmas cuz okay. there's a um, but, uh, and, you know, he was quite famous for his poetry. Like he you know, sure. did poetry readings all around the world. He was particularly, um, he was big in Eastern Europe. He would mm-hmm. go to, he was very, he was a very famous poet in Romania. Wow. And there was three or four times where he headlined this big poetry festival in Romania. And he would describe the experiences to me somewhat incredibly, and um, he'd be over there for like 10 days, two weeks at a time. And like, he, I mean, like the stories were just mind blowing. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, anyways, well, he, he studied under James Tate, right? Yeah. James Tate. Yeah. And, and he was um, like, he was a UVA. 
you know, they had a, some famous poets there that were mm-hmm. on the English uh, writing staff. And, you know, these are names, these aren't people that I know, you know, but they were very impressed by David. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Understandably. Yeah. And like, he'd have to tell, like, he's not, was not much of a, a, a braggart, but like, uh, it was very encouraging to him to be, you know, a young adult and get such praise for his poetry. So in a very determined fashion, he would, you know, lock himself in his room and either rest or then he had a room in the red house that had an office attached to it. And you could often, you'd often go over to visit him and you could look through his window and he would be sitting in front of an old typewriter writing poetry and you knock on his window and wave and he either tell you to go away or like, signal like with his hands you can come back in like 30 minutes or something because i lived across the street and be like (laughs) i'll be ready for you in a half an hour i'm like, let me finish this you know what i mean so so with a guy like that you're just gonna like you're happy that that um you know you didn't get the middle finger you know Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. so but but, uh anyways well let's play something from the last silver jews record yeah, the last one, I believe it was 2008, right? 2008 or 2009. Uh, Something like that, yeah. I think it was 2000, yeah, 2008. The, the right. Actually, some, some, you know, the least celebrated mm-hmm. um, of his records. Um, and I think it's got some great songs on it, and that's just the way things go in music, where, you know, maybe you've, like, you know, maybe you feel like the magic's gone, like you've actually, like, after years of not touring, you've become a touring band. You've traveled all over the world. Maybe expectations are really high. Mm-hmm. But when he put out um, "Look Out Mountain, Look Out Sea" in the summer of eighteen, um, you know, again, similar personnel as live band. Again, Cassie, very much at the at the forefront. It's a great album, and it's uh, just like a lot of great last albums by bands. It's like somewhat overlooked and. This is a real favorite of mine from it's called Suffering Jukebox.
but money lights your world up You're trapped, what can you do? You got Tennessee tendencies and chemical dependencies You make the same old jokes and malaprops on cue Suffering jukebox. Yeah, look out, Mount Look out, see. That was, uh, I think, uh, I'm not sure which songs were rich, but some were recorded in Nashville and some were recorded by Steve West in, in hmm. outside of Lexington, Virginia. I'd have to ask Steve if, if um, that was recorded there, but. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, again, um, a very enduring friendship between uh, Steve and David and uh, also Gate Pratt, um, who co wrote. A handful of Silver G songs that was friends with David for 35 years. I mean, and uh, so yeah, um, you know, a lot of people that came and went, came back in, you know, as he traveled and did his thing. Um, and you know, so then Silver G stopped, right? That was the end that. of it, there, huh? That was the end of it. Um, I'm not really quite sure why. I think he wanted to turn his attention to other things. In particular, he was thinking about um, writing a, a book about his father, um, right. which I don't even know to what extent that got off the ground. There was other writing things that were offered to him. He was working on his poetry. He was mostly in Nashville. He wasn't doing much. And then he embarked um, somewhat quietly on this process of making another record but decided that at some point along the line and it was at least released this year the purple mountains record mm-hmm. self-titled um it was at least five six seven years in the making wow. a lot of traveling a lot of like you know being away from nashville a lot of a lot of adventures on the west coast and in in canada british columbia um, he definitely spent some time in Joshua Tree by himself. He's definitely in Portland a lot. He came through here and would stop here in Des Moines on the way. Uh, Whitney, had, Whitney used to have a, um, a really cool pumpkin carving party in which like 20 or 30 people from, from the area would come over and carve pumpkins. And David came through for that on his way out west. Hmm. And 
and um, he didn't realize he'd be walking into a party. <laughs> but in typical David fashion, he said he was coming a week before he actually came. And then he came, and then he really he socialized for a while. And then he was aware of the fact that one of my friends in town, Mark Hogan, who we've mentioned before on the show, sure. wrote for Pitchfork. And I, I knew he was going to bail um, before he talked to anybody from Pitchfork just because <laughs> he didn't want to be questioned about David Berman. He just wanted to be David Berman. Right. You know? And uh, <clears throat> so it was funny. Like there's like a few couples that had young children that came over mm-hmm. and David was very much of the part of the party. Then it was like five to six o'clock and there was a young couple here that had a baby and, and he knew Mark Hogan had the same and he was being like a normal party goer for about an hour and then they walked in and he assumed that was the guy from Pitchfork but it was actually another guy, another friend of ours named Tony Galoro and as soon as he saw Tony Galoro he bailed <laughs> and he, he just spent the rest of the evening so the party went on to like three in the morning there's you know a few dozen people here are carving pumpkins and there's like a champion and stuff like that and he's he was just hiding up in the guest room because he just couldn't deal and like listening to conversations and like laughing and taking notes and write, writing things. And then he had it out West and like, keep in mind the process of making purple mountains was endless and it was, it became all consuming for him. Hmm. Um, it's, it's kind of all I really talked about. Um, to the point where I think it got on a lot of people's nerves hmm. <laughs> And, like, and we went through it on the show. Um, right. You, yeah, we, we sort of broke the news, like, unintentionally, because he told me, like... Last December. Yeah, he told me, like, whatever you do, just don't play the song. He just said, he said, he, he sent me the files for all the songs. Mm-hmm. And they were, like, 99% finished. And he said, he said, whatever you do, don't play this these songs for anybody except for Whitney, because obviously, like, you know, Whitney's in the house so she's gonna hear it mm-hmm. and uh so you know i'm thinking like you know you called me up and you, we, did, we did a rare day podcast and you said that's right let's do a podcast and i said okay and I, then i was thinking like, okay well i gotta pick three songs and i was like hold on i've never really you know talked about david much in the first what 50 episodes of the show i think it was the 79th episode okay so it was, you know so, yeah. <laughs> it was way so, into so, it yeah. way into it okay whatever the hell it was and um so um, I was just like, okay, well, you know, I've, I've got some news, you know, like, but, and then I'd lied to you. I said, I can't, I, I don't, I don't have any of the songs, but <laughs> you lied, Bob. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I lied. And, okay. um, yeah, but I had to, you know, right. Right. But I was like, well, I'm going to play some, I'm going to like, I've got, you know, a half hour to prepare for this show. And like, I was going, I was like, I've never really played or talked that much about silver Jews. I'm going to play silver Jews in the show. And, I'm going to come up with an announcement. I was like, well, that'll be a nice contribution to the podcast that, you know, a few hundred people listen to. And then (laughs) I finished the podcast and within like 15 to 30 minutes, I'm getting all these things about, uh oh. And then like within like 45 minutes, I'm getting texts from David, like, how could you do that? Like, (laughs) my instructions were not to play any of the music. I didn't know anything about not talking about the project. And. Um, when I went and visited him, like in January of this year, he punched a hole in the wall, and like, um, and I left some notes, some sticky notes on there, like 
to Dan Kretzky to send me the bill for the wall. And like, oh, no. You know, well, it's just the way it goes, <laughs> yeah. David. You know, it's typical. Yeah. And, like, you know, of course, I was forgiven and da-da-da-da. And, like, you know, we talked about that um, somewhat very accidentally um, Purple Mountains were sort of thrust into the publicity world be a pitchfork i believe you mentioned rolling stone mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. and it was just from from this from podcast our stupid little podcast i didn't even think anybody listened to it so yeah. that was refreshing i don't think it's um, made any difference to the podcast but perhaps it has but who cares you know we we do this all voluntarily with no sponsors we just do it for for fun for us and yeah. uh, so so then you know the purple mountains record um came out and um David's best friend his whole life was his mother Mimi, uh, who died about three years ago. Um, and it, I think that um, became clear to me that uh, life was a completely different place for him after his mother died, which is very understandable. Um, she raised him. Uh, and uh, so and this is a, a tribute song uh, to his mother. Um, called uh, I Love Being My Mother's Son. Way back when I first begun Starting when I first was young Through all the years that were to come I loved being my mother's son Yeah, I loved being my mother's son I loved her so because Me stunned. 
I wasn't done being my mother's son Only now am I seeing that being done Yeah, I love being my mother's son I loved her so because She was my faithful guardian She was, she was, she was 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 a sweet song probably uh, certainly the most sincere and sweetest i think on the record but maybe the sweetest and most sincere song he ever wrote could do a, i would imagine so <laughs> um considering the subject matter yeah and um you know keep in mind like i don't really know I, I i've never met the guys but the backing band on that was a band called woods from brooklyn i'm mostly unfamiliar with and I've never met the guys, but they, you know, co-produced that. Um, Jarvis and Jeremy are their names, and I believe the the background vocals on that are provided by Jeremy, who's, mm-hmm. uh, who, you know, I think a lot of people think it might be Cassie or somebody else, but that, I believe that's him. But I don't know. I don't know who did what on that, the guitar solos or drums or any of that. Mm. Okay, just a um, beautiful song, you know. And and you mentioned earlier that that record kind of feels dark and some people call it a suicide note. And, you know, I think it's a very sad record in a lot of ways, especially now in retrospect, you know, looking back on, on it after knowing what we know now, but I think that song is sad in a different way. I mean, it's sad for David because you, you know, you can hear how sincerely, I mean, it's just, it's a love note to his mom. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, it, it does hurt my feelings um, to this day that, you know, he, he meant me to play drums on that, but, uh, and, you know, because of work and other obligations. And when I went out to visit him in Portland when he was in the process of making this record, um, we were supposed to play music, but he got a really bad flu and he was mostly on a couch and I had to bring him. Um, for some reason, he always wanted popsicles when he was sick. Mm. So I was going down to the. <laughs> Whole Foods and getting him popsicles. So that was, we played with, um, it was, we were at Steven's house and just, we had the run of the house to ourselves and I was there for five days 
and we didn't really accomplish much. Um, we gambled on Matchbox car races the first night for a dollar around. He had a tremendous collection of Matchbox cars that he would carry around in suitcases. He had suitcases filled with vintage Matchbox cars. Wow. So I was going to the store and bringing him popsicles and Matchbox cars. Okay. <laughs> like, but uh, anyways, Woods did a fantastic job on this record. But but uh, sure. also a huge part of this record was he was developing a friendship um, with a guy who did a beautiful piece of art, a wonderful, uh, who we put on the show, a wonderful mm-hmm. artist, musician, and human being called Jeffrey Lewis. And um, Jeffrey, uh, um, he he was talking to David a lot during this and, and David had a huge amount of respect for him. I think almost to the, to the extent that um, he mentioned several artists when I visited him in January that have, int- have int- intimidated him um, to the point where, uh, where it made this record really hard to make because he was extremely self-conscious about it. And he was very conscious of the environment that he'd be putting on a record in and he was no longer Silver Jews and everything that came with it. And now he was in his 50s, and he was very aware of what was going on and very appreciative of all the talented people, um, you know, that it, that it occurred after his last album in 2008. And it put an enormous amount of pressure on that. He put that on himself just because he realized that there were other great wordsmiths out there and and Jeffrey would be at the top of the list and and. Um, the night that, uh, that David died, uh, Jeffrey played a show and during that show, he, he, uh, he made a, just a, a truly wonderful eulogy to David. And I, we're going to play a snippet of that, a couple minutes of that. Um, you got that cued? I do. Yeah. Here yeah, we go. Yeah. Uh, it's Jeff- Jeffrey, Jeffrey Lewis, uh, eulogizing David Berman. When the art project was done... And I was like, okay, this is maybe the end. Maybe this is the end of our communication. I kind of blew my cool and I wrote him an email telling him how great I thought his stuff was. And as soon as I hit send, I really regretted it. And I was like, I've really gone too far. That was embarrassed. I, I've gone too, I shouldn't have really gushed like that to him. And um, I was really like, worried about what his response would be or I, I didn't know I was just like why, why, maybe I should have shown that to a friend of mine first before I hit send <laughs> and then his response was like so off the charts sweet and great that um, I'm just so glad that I sent and I'll, 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 read, I'll read this exchange to you <clears throat> Thursday March 28th 5.12pm uh, so this is what I wrote I'm celebrating the finished art by loading up my five-disc CD player with Silver Jews albums, and I had a listening marathon last night, and then I listened to the remaining albums this morning. I'm sure you don't need to hear it from me, but you are an absolute staggering master of artistic power. It's a body of work of such strength and power. The songs, every line, the music, the singing, the entire aesthetic concept and execution and existence of what you have brought into the world is like an airdrop of 10 tons of sheer soul nourishment, delicious and nutritious, home-cooked, fantastic menus of wonderful food on an impoverished and starving, war-torn zone behind enemy lines. 
you had to fly some unimaginably rigorous and brave and intense missions to bring us what you've brought us. And you knew you were the only one who could do it. Even when your commanders told you not to. Even when it seemed like an impossible mission or a worthless mission. You did it over and over. The souls who get their hands on these meals will be nourished heartily by them and we thank you for your service. Life, our brains, our souls, our hearts, society, it's a war zone and we've had the shit kicked out of us and you're Rambo. Well, even if Reagan put Rambo on a stamp, it wouldn't have healed his warrior heart of the horrors he's endured. But maybe he can stand up straight and accept a salute. That's part of his job too. And then uh, he wrote back, that is the most flattering paragraph I've ever read. I'm printing it, I'm printing it out to put in my wallet. <laughs> Thank you, Jeffrey. So I'm really glad I sent that to him. And uh, I'm just really glad that happened and I'm really sad. This week, as I was gonna meet him for the first time in a few days at the first of a few shows we were gonna do together and I was looking forward to that. And a lot of people were looking forward to uh, to seeing him, and I was one of thousands of people looking forward to seeing him. Wow, that's a hell of a fan letter. It is, and it's. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it. I think I mean, that's. In, yeah. It's it's a hell of an epitaph too. It sums up his career. Um, I mean, I think unintentionally so when Jeffrey wrote that to him, um, but somewhat spontaneously. Yeah, you know, which is, uh, you know, pretty amazing. Like, I mean, I, I, I had to, you know, eulogize him at his funeral, and I, uh, I, you know, maybe the fact that I knew him so well, there's no way I could come up, you know, oh, it's just insane. Like, that's a guy that he, um, had been collaborating with via email. I don't even know how often they spoke on phone and text and stuff, and and they were. They developed a friendship, uh, mainly starting last year and this year, and um, it does hurt my heart that 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 Jeffrey and David never met. It yeah. does hurt my heart. Yeah. So. <laughs> wow. Well, but uh, yeah. he's doing well, you know, and like uh, he just finished a tour of Europe, and uh, Whitney sent sent him some memorabilia, and. Uh, I've spoken to him several times on the phone, and just a just a, a great guy. And I got actually got to see him in this year. I think I did I did a podcast that night um, that I saw Jeffrey. Might have played one of his songs. You did. When I played his song, you, did. you played and, a song um, of his, yeah. I met him, and he was so excited. I had to go to work at a clock the next morning. It was like eleven o'clock, and um, it was a fantastic show. So if you ever have the opportunity to see this guy play live, don't miss it. And um, I really enjoyed the show, and I laughed. And I've seen the you know two fantastic shows this year out of about twenty, and one of them was Jeffrey Lewis, the other one was M. D. Mokhtar. Mm. Mind blowing. Mm. And uh, but uh, I, so Jeffrey, I, I went up. I felt the need. I had to introduce myself to him. So I introduced him. We spoke for about five minutes, and he just he immediately whipped out his laptop and started showing me this poster he made. Where he incorporated every single Silver Juice song in the poster, every single Silver Silver Juice song. He's showing me things on his laptop, and he's like, "Let's, you know, can you go out?" I said, "You're welcome to stay at our house." And he's like, "Oh, no, we thought 
place to stay is a three-piece band, three people on tour. And I was like, I really can't go out. I've got to like get up in four hours and you know clock horses and I gave him a hug and and I've you know spoken to him many times since. I look forward to seeing seeing him again. But uh, anyways, we'll end the show now. Yeah, let me uh, before before we end it, I want to ask you a question. Sure. Uh, you know, as somebody who's known David, who knew David for what over thirty years. Um, I since mean, eighty five, yeah, since eighty five. I, I won't even I won't even ask how you'll remember him because I'm sure it's complex and it's not an easy answer and we could do a whole show just on that and we kinda have Well no, it's fairly easy but, actually. Um Go ahead. but uh, but what what I wanna ask is how you would like people like me, like the listeners, I think many of whom most of whom never met David, how you would like us to remember him. It's way easier for me to answer part A of that question. I'll remember him as uh uh, one of the uh, one of the funniest, most amazing, uh, talented human beings I'll ever know. So you know, and, and his opinions and his approach and his thoughts were so unique. So you know, that's the biggest hole for me is that I don't I don't have David's perspective on things, whether it be football or a catfish or you know um, snacks or like rental cars or you know whatever i mean like you know so I'll, i mean I'll, I'll miss his opinions because they were they were incredibly solid and i'll miss the frivolity is what i'll miss i'll miss mm-hmm. like uh the hilarity you know the uh you know making him laugh and like uh i won't miss the insults and the fights and you know all the things that come with an ancient friendship Especially one that's like, uh, is, you know, it was a mixed bag of joy. But, Complex, uh, yeah, yeah. But and as far as part B, P, as far as part B goes, it's up to you guys. I mean, like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, you know, just like Jeffrey, like, uh, the, you know, the music's there, the poetry's there, and um, it's up to you guys. The only thing I can tell you guys is that he wasn't always and uh, he he wasn't an, un, an unhappy person mm-hmm. he had he 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 fought depression his whole life but mm-hmm. he he was not unhappy right you now and he could be like you think like a lot of people came up to me like you know after he died and even during his life and said like david seems really great david seems really great like they expected him to be down or like be sad or be dark and like when I knew him as a young man, if he was like suffering, he would just go in his room and like, you know, occasionally knock on his window or his door, just you know, say how he's doing, see you know, see how he's doing, and you know, even talking to him on the phone, like, or whatever. But like, you know, it was just one of those things where, of course, you knew that there was this overriding, you know, lifelong depression that he fought, you know. Uh, with dozens of um, therapists and a wide variety of medications. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think even this year he's experimenting with a new therapist. It was like taking him off. I don't even know how all that worked. I mean, like, I mean, that's just like clinical depression from diagnosed at a very young age. But uh, in a lot of ways, he was a, a bundle of joy. Mm-hmm. So. And I think that comes out in the songwriting and the does. poetry. Yeah, you know and that, so, that complexity sure, sure does. 
Yeah, yeah the, the sense of humor and stuff like that. It's usually, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's an easy thing to say about anything, including yourself. But, you know, you're a unique individual, Mike. So, and, uh, you know, so that, you know, some people aren't, you know, so. And David was, so that's the way it goes, you know. But, uh, anyways, this uh, Haley Four sings on this. His dear friend is one of his, his new, just like Jeffrey, one of his new buddies, a, a friend that he, he'd known for less than a year. And, like, they got to hang out a lot in Chicago. David was living at Drag City. He was living in, uh, you know, a little tiny dorm room sized place that he'd called the Coconut Hotel across from his dear friends, uh, Nicole Yalaz and, and Luke Nee. And he was living right next to Dan's office on the second floor of Drag City in Chicago. And um, this is uh, Nights Day Nights Day Won't Happen with Haley Forp running uh, back on vocals from Circuit to You. <laughs>
world is like a roadside inn and we're the guests inside And death is a black camel that kneels down so we can ride The dying's finally done, the suffering subsides All the suffering gets done by the ones we leave behind All the suffering gets done by the ones we leave behind On nights that won't happen With each other again Nights that won't happen Never reaching the end Nights that won't happen We can't even begin We can't even begin Thank you, Bob. Thank you for doing yeah, so this yeah, show. The world, the world would not have known David Berman, his art, his music, and his poetry without Dan Koreski. Yeah, for sure. Drag City really helped bring it out to the world, and you know, I, I appreciate you taking the time to share the your incredible thoughts. patience of Dan Koreski, the belief, patience, yeah. trust, and. You know, David was a huge part of Drag City, and the whole that Dan must feel. I mean, Dan, there'd be, the world wouldn't know David without Dan. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Dan. Thank you, Bob. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>